Greetings. Joseph Kursky here with you on another edition of the Thinking Spatially podcast. Today we will speak about Strabo's Geographica, the whole known world. Strabo's Geographica, the whole known world. In today's blog and Twitter saturated world of short text, Strabo's 63 BCE to circa 24 CE, Geographica seems almost from another world. Not only was it lengthy, composed of 17 books, yes, 17 books, but it also is one of the most important sources on geography ever written. Geographica is not a book about a specific region or soil type or geographic method. Rather, it is an attempt to discuss and describe the entire known world, known to the Greeks and Romans, of his time. It contains his observations on philosophy, history, geography, and science. These provide insight to the land use, customs, trade, climate, and other aspects of physical and cultural geography of that era. These observations are corroborated by other sources. Geographica also provides enormous insight regarding how thinkers of that time observed, reflected, and reasoned about the world. Geographica was revolutionary. It contained descriptions about both people and places. A multitude of copies of it survived throughout the Byzantine Empire. From there, it then appeared in Western Europe and Rome as a Latin translation from 1469. The first Greek edition was published in 1516 in Venice. Strabo acknowledged Eratosthenes and Hipparchus's astronomical and mathematical efforts influencing geography. Strabo claimed that a descriptive approach was more practical. He is politically savvy, reserving cultural primary to Greece, but political allegiance to Rome. The first of Strabo's major works, Historical Sketches, or Historica Hypomenata, written while he was in Rome in about 20 BCE, is nearly completely lost, a pity since it covered the history of the known world from the conquest of Greece by the Romans. This was equally, if not more extensive than Geographica, consisting of 43 books, from the Roman destruction of Corinth and Carthage in 146 BCE to around the time of the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE. Thus, it would have been a continuation of the historical writings of Polybius, circa 200 to 118 BCE, whom Strabo greatly admired. Fortunately for geographers and the world, the Geographica was not lost. In the first two of the 17 volumes, Strabo examined the history of the discipline, praising those he admired, such as Homer, whom he called the first geographer, and attacking those he did not, including Herodotus and Eratosthenes. Book three discusses Spain, and book four, Britain, France, and the Alps. In the fifth and sixth books, he presents the geography of Italy and the surrounding islands, noting that Mount Vesuvius seemed to be a volcano. It would soon erupt in 79 CE. The next three books cover Greece and surrounding islands, though he does not discuss their geography in great detail, perhaps thinking his readers would already know about them. 
Books 11 through 16 concern Asia, including the geography of India derived from lost writings of soldiers in the armies of Alexander the Great, 356 to 323 BCE. Book 17 examines Africa. Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology says, quote, Strabo seems and enters largely in the second book of his geography into the opinions of Eratosthenes and other Greeks on one of the most difficult problems in geology, that is, by what causes marine shells to be plentifully buried in the earth at such great elevations and distances from the sea. This modern, vexing geographic problem that Strabo tackles is typical of him. Strabo says that the seas had once been more extensive, and that they had afterwards been partially dried up, as in his own time many lakes, rivers, and wells in Asia had failed during a season of drought. Strabo summarizes some current thinking about landscapes, and rejects them as insufficient to account for all of the phenomena, and thus often proposes his own. In the case of ocean changes, his theory is partially profound and ahead of his time. Quote, it is not, he says, because the lands covered by seas were originally at different altitudes that the waters have risen or subsided or receded from some parts and inundated others, but the reason is that the same land is sometimes raised up and sometimes depressed, and the sea also is simultaneously raised and depressed so that it either overflows or returns to its own place again. We must therefore ascribe the cause to the ground, either to that ground which is under the sea, or to that which becomes flooded by it. It is proper to derive our explanations from things which are obvious, and in some measure of daily occurrence, such as deluges, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and sudden swellings of the land beneath the sea. For the last raise up the sea also, and when the same lands subside again, they occasion the sea to be let down. And it is not merely the small, but the large islands also, and not merely the islands, but the continents, which can be lifted up together with the sea, and both large and small tracts may subside, for habitations and cities like Bure, Bizona, and many others have been engulfed by earthquakes. Geographica contains mistakes, beginnings beginning with Strabo's placement of the Earth at the center of the universe. Geographic errors include connecting the Caspian Sea to the Great Northern Sea, which Strabo and most ancients believed was in turn part of a larger ocean surrounding all the Earth's lands. Book 7 examines Northern Europe, but neither Strabo nor those he consulted knew much about Europe north of the Alps, or for that matter, about Africa south of the Nile. However, considering he had no access to accurate maps, or satellite imagery, or modern instruments of any kind, the book is revolutionary. Not only did it provide highly useful summations of his own first-hand knowledge, but it includes references to and insights on writings that have long been lost. Even though some of his explanations of geomorphology are wrong, Strabo is also influential because he discusses landscapes as dynamic and seeks to understand them through observing their changes. He discusses scale and processes that sound much like the uniformitarianism proposed 1800 years later by Hutton. He carefully sifts through existing theories and does not hesitate when he finds them to be improbable. An example, his is his observations on the pyramids. One extraordinary thing which I saw at the pyramids, which must not be omitted, heaps of stones from the quarries lie in front of the pyramids. Among these are found pieces in which shape and size resemble lentils. Some contain substances like grains half peeled. 
these, he said, are the remnants of the workman's food converted into stone, which is not probable. Furthermore, Strabo was not only a geographer, but a philosopher and a historian, and wove the disciplines together, helping geography's reputation as a discipline that would enable others to see their own discipline in new ways. He also describes the connection between earthquakes and volcanoes in Sicily. Indeed, his is the first written definition and discussion of volcanism, first observed at Katakekaumene, modern Kula, in western Turkey, and also at Mount Vesuvius. Later, Pliny the Younger witnessed the eruption of Vesuvius on 24 August 79 AD, or 79 CE, in Pompeii. Strabo also provides the very first written definition and discussion on formation of fossils, mentioning nummolites. His writings contain mysterious elements, such as a small flying reptile one meter long having the body of a snake and wings like a bat. This creature was also mentioned by Herodotus, Aristotle, and Josephus. Did the creature go extinct? Was it confused with some other creature? Or were the tales complete fabrications that Strabo reported on without further investigation? Hmm. Like other geographers, Strabo's birthplace and upbringing influenced his work in geography. He was born to an affluent family from Amasia in Pontus, part of present-day Amasaya in Turkey, about 75 kilometers from the Black Sea. Proximity to the sea led to extensive traveling, similar to other geographers past and present. His journeys took him to other parts of Asia Minor, to Rome, throughout the Mediterranean, to Egypt and Kush, modern-day Sudan, west to coastal Tuscany and southeast to Ethiopia. His time's political climate, characterized by relative peace throughout the reign of Augustus, encouraged scholarly journeys by several notable figures. Libraries were critical to his work. He spent six years at the Great Library at Alexandria. Mentors were important to his work. He studied under Aristodemus, the head of two schools of rhetoric and grammar, Aristodemus was also the grandson of Posidonius, whose influence is manifest in Strabo's geography. In Rome, he also learned grammar under the rich and famous scholar Tyrannion of Emesus, who was a respected authority on geography. Another mentor was Athenodorus Canaanites, who gave to Strabo his philosophy, his knowledge, and just as importantly, his network of contacts. Hmm. Networking geography is as important uh, now as it was 2,000 years ago, right, folks? Strabo's work, when, quote, rediscovered, quote, end quote, during the Renaissance, guaranteed that he would be influential to the development of modern geographic thought, observation, and measurement. And that concludes today's Thinking Spatially podcast on Strabo's Geographica, colon, the whole known world, Strabo's Geographica. Thanks.